Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we just want to lift our evening to you. Lord, that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, um, specifically, Lord, from the scripture. Things that maybe you want to prune in our life. Areas that you just desire to work in. And Lord, help us to have the, the ability, Lord, just to obey you. And Lord, hear your voice. And Lord, help us not to be distracted, Lord, with the, the cares of this world as we sit and hear from you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All right. We're, we're going to talk about privilege and responsibility tonight. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and, and uh, read the passage, and then we'll go ahead and we'll just trudge through it. Verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, and that, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual morality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is not, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake, partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar what am i saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather that the things which the gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to god and i do not want you to have fellowship with demons you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the lord's table and of the table of demons or do we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market 
asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And any of, and if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And we go to 11.1 here because that's really where the chapter should break. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Well, as we approach this chapter, there are a few things we need to get caught up with. Paul, in speaking to this Corinthian church, has already illustrated in the previous chapters how they were abundantly rich, spiritually speaking. They lacked nothing. However, though they were rich, they were incredibly carnal. Corinth was known as a city filled with cults, prostitution, and all forms of debauchery. Corinth had, was the second largest population, had the second largest population, second only to Rome. Why? Because it sat on a main trade route. It had harbors. So you can imagine at this time in history, there was so much going through the city. And because of all the different forms of debauchery taking place in the city, the residents had come upon a bad reputation. You see, to be a Corinthian was slanderous. It had an evil connotation behind it. They had become, or they had come to become a byword among that world at that time. Now we have to keep in mind what the church is made up of. It's made up of sinners, right? You and me. Folks who have come out of the world, coming from different backgrounds and different levels of depravity. You have prostitutes, alcoholics, fornicators, idolaters. Folks from all over the, the spectrum receiving Christ. And now they were, they were becoming part of the body of Christ. Early in this letter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And who's he talking to? The Corinthians. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These are the folks that were coming into the church. This made up the body of Christ. Because the church was in its infancy, there were some areas the Corinthian leadership was indecisive about. So Paul seeks to correct some of the issues and the abuses that the church was struggling with. In this particular passage set before us, Paul is going to point out two important areas regarding the Christian and his walk. 
he's going to refer to privilege and responsibility. In the previous chapter, he illustrates how we're to compete. We're supposed to compete for an imperishable crown, not like the perishable crown. You see, the perishable crown they gave you was the celery wreath. And it was awarded to those who competed in the Isthmian Games. And please know, in those games, there was no second or third place. They only gave you one crown, a perishable crown. Either you won or you didn't. And he draws a parallel for you and I to understand that as Christians, we're saved by the blood of Christ. And positionally, we're in Christ. We're in the place of privilege. As a Christian, do you believe you're in a place of privilege? Think about the non-believer. Are they in a place of privilege? No way. We're incredibly privileged as believers. We're to be striving for the imperishable crown. And folks, that takes effort. There's no such thing as cruise control for the Christian. Paul begins to move in this chapter to draw another parallel. Israel had also been in a place of privilege. And they serve as a stark reality that privilege shouldn't be confused with taking advantage of liberty, which they enjoyed. He himself said in chapter 9, even though he was an apostle, and this is important, and though he had the authority of an apostle, he never used those privileges of benefit for himself, though he could have. He didn't abuse those privileges. We can all learn from Paul's example. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 for privilege. That's our first hook. Notice in verses 1 through 2, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul draws upon a historical reference to illustrate Israel's deliverance. And notice how they were all, notice that four times, all were set free from Egypt, the house of bondage. And how we too have been set free from the world, the house of bondage. And we've been baptized into Christ in the water, as it were. And we've been brought out into the newness of life, just like the Israelites. As they came out of the Red, out of the, the Red Sea, they came out into the newness of life. No longer in Egypt, they've been liberated. Moses led the people of God from Egypt in anticipation of the promised land. So to Christ, he's delivered us and leads us in anticipation of heaven. And notice in verses three through four, he says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Here's another parallel for us to consider. God had provided for the Israelites in a real way. It's estimated that he led anywhere in the neighborhood of a million and a half to two million people in the wilderness. And we know from the book of Exodus, chapters 16 and 17, how God would provide bread from heaven daily. And that he would lead Moses to, to Horeb and he would strike a rock and that out of that rock would come water. Once he struck it. This isn't normal, folks. This is miraculous. God was not providing bread and water for a few people. And I think that, you know, our mind plays tricks sometimes because we think about that. We think, ah, it's just a few people. Could you imagine just providing food and water for those who just come here? 
That's a lot of people. You know, I have six kids at home. There's two adults. You should see my water bill. You see my grocery bill. It takes a lot to feed a, a family. And you're talking anywhere between a million and a half to two million people. God provided in a real way. He was providing sustenance for all of them. No one lacked. And what a great lesson for all of us to draw upon. Paul is saying to this Corinthian church, is we've been saved by the same God we see in the Old Testament. He is unlike any of the pagan gods or the deities that you've been accustomed to know. And which of the pagan gods can you look to that sustained a group of over 2 million people for 40 years? 40 years in the wilderness, God provided for them. The answer is none. There's no one in history, no other God in history that has been able to sustain a group of people in the wilderness. Listen, you and I need to know a God that is able to interrupt our natural laws. That's the God we need to have. We need a, a God that, can, that doesn't... Think about some of the critics, I'm sorry. We need a God that we know can deliver us. And, you know, there's some of the critics that say, well, when, when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, that when he parted the, the sea, is really this wind that went across the marsh, and, you know, they were able to cross it. But let me tell you, if that were true, the Egyptians were on horses. These people were on foot. Those people are going to get stuck. I'm on a horse. I'm going to be able to get around you and capture you. No, I need a God that I know that can deliver us. I need to know that there's a God that will rain fire down. That's the God we need. We need a God that we know that can split the sea and drown the Egyptian army. We need a God who can deliver us. And that's the God of the Bible. And Paul is drawing this comparison He's pointing out the obvious privilege that we all stand in. Yet he's saying that we're not that they weren't responding in the way they ought to in light of the gospel and the benefit they were receiving. They are in danger of committing the same errors the children of Israel committed. That's the point. They are committing the same errors. They're going down the same road. What's more incriminating is the Corinthians have a point of reference. They had history. They had the history of Israel. Which ought to tell us something. We too have Israel, and we have all the churches of the New Testament to consider. Think about that. Israel in the Old Testament didn't have anybody else to refer to. They were living it in real time. Well, the Corinthian church and all the other churches now have Israel to look to. Now we too, as a different generation, can look back and look at Israel and the churches of the New Testament. That's... That's a lot of evidence for us to consider. We have a greater responsibility. The church at Corinth was predominantly a Gentile body of believers. And Paul makes this association with Israel being the people of God. And he builds this case that though they were a people of God in the position of privilege, yet many of them chose unwisely. And please keep that in the forefront of your mind as we move through the chapter. The picture is the Israelites were in the wilderness They were in this harsh environment. And we're told in verse 4, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. For 40 years, God provided for the children of Israel. Notice, until their foot hit the promised land. And no longer did He provide the same way. 
God would lead the children of Israel by, with a cloud by day and a fire at night. And I'm sure the cloud had a double benefit. It would shield them from the harsh elements of the wilderness, the scorching hot sun. The pillar of fire no doubt struck fear to the enemies looking for an opportunity to attack Israel. I mean, think about it. If you came over a mountain or a range and you looked over and you saw this pillar of fire, you'd consider that, wouldn't you? All these people, how in the world are they living out there for so long? There's a God that goes before them. Then it tells us that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul is telling that Christ was present, providing water. And what does that mean for us, spiritually speaking? It means that Christ is going to provide in our greatest need and in the most difficult environment we find ourselves in. And that need is a spiritual. And that is what will sustain us. You know, back in John chapter 4, you know, we read of a story of Jesus sitting at the well. And in that story, a woman approaches the well to draw some water. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And she says, how is that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Furthermore, he tells her, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then we read in John chapter 7 how the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And the last day of the feast, the priest would come out with a container of water. And, And what they would do is pour out the water onto the ground. It was symbolizing God's provision of water in the wilderness. And you know what we miss on this side of the world? I mean, we're used to going to a tap, turn on the water, water comes out, we have hose, we, water fountain. I mean, we have water everywhere. But in that region of the world, they understood water is life. No water, no life. You need water. And they understood the miracle that God had provided water to a nation faithfully for 40 years. Now imagine this scene. Here comes the priest, he comes out. And he begins pouring water. And everyone's excited because, you know, this is a feast they did every year. And pours out the water on the ground. And all of a sudden, here's this voice. And I'm sure everybody heard it. Here's Jesus. And he yells out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, torrents, as the language tells us, torrents of living water. Ding. They understood. They understood what water was all about. Torrents of living water? In the Old Testament, Moses struck the rock and the water flowed. Then he was instructed to speak to the rock. Well, we know Moses failed in this area because he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. And Jesus, our rock, he's already been struck once. Now, all we have to do, as the scripture says, is believe in him and speak to him. And he'll provide the spiritual water we need. Again, no pagan deity even comes close. Now, how many uh, people do you know? And I'm sure you've heard this before. Man, if, if only I could just speak to an angel. God, send me an angel. Just 
let me touch his wings. You know, let me talk to an angel. Or, or Lord, just show me a miracle. One of the miracles you did in the Bible, can I see it? Can you do something for me? And that'll deepen my faith. That'll set me straight, Lord. How many people think that way or said those things? How about you when you're, you're a young Christian? Some of you here thinking, man, Lord, show me something, a sign, and that will just deepen my faith. Well, here's the problem. Israel saw all the miracles. They saw the water turning to blood, the parting of the sea, the daily provision of manna. Yet in all that, it wasn't enough. I mean, think about it. If they wanted to see the power of God, all they had to do was open their tent door, look outside at night, and they would see a pillar of fire at night. But did that change them? Did that make them any more spiritual? It didn't. It didn't. And how do we know this? Well, it says here in verse 5, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Notice, this is the only time he doesn't say all. He says most. He was not pleased with most of them. And this is the warning Paul is trying to establish. Though they were privileged with knowing God, God was not pleased. Literally in the language that he did not take pleasure in them because of the rebelliousness. He says their bodies were scattered through the wilderness. That word is kata sonomai. It has this idea of being cast down and scattered. And that wasn't God's intention. As you read the scriptures, that is not God's character. That was a decision they made. They were rebellious. He wants your fulfillment to be found in him. Not in in things that will draw you away from him. You know, I've been here at Calvary Chapel for over 23 years. And I've served alongside some pretty amazing people. And I've fellowshiped with many through the years. And as time has gone on, some of those faces have disappeared. They've gone back into the world. Folks, the world with all its trappings and allurements is enticing. And the church cannot compete with it. But it's not meant to. The church is not meant to compete with the world. If you're struggling with your walk and you're thinking, ah, you know what? It was easier when I was in the world. In a way, it was. But if you're considering going back into the world, you got some you got some issues. And I'd implore you to reconsider and learn from Israel's history and the church's history. However, if you do leave. And after several seasons in the world and you happen to survive the beating of the world and you happen to to make it back. You're still going to find us doing the same thing we've been doing for here a long time. Teaching the word of God. That's not going to change here. So you may leave and come back, but we're going to be doing the same thing. Because it's the word of God that sustains us. The world will beat you up. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee you will make it back. It says because... With most of them, he was not well pleased. Maybe one of those bodies scattered in the wilderness. And what are some of those things he was not pleased with? Well, notice verse 6. They lusted after evil things. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The word for 
there's a word here for example. And it's, it's this idea of like a stamp. Okay, you have an image and you want it impressed on something. You would take it and you would strike it with a blow. And he says, that's our example. Look at this, this image. And he's talking about Israel. He says, look at this image of Israel and learn from it. And they were no different than you. That's what he's, Paul is saying. He goes, they were no different than you. They were privileged. They were a people of God. Look at them and learn from them. The Israelites serve as a compelling example for us to observe and to learn from. They were delivered from a pagan culture and they needed to leave that behind. Yet, they lusted after evil things. Things that have no spiritual value. None. No spiritual value. You know, usually lust in the Bible is defined as having a desire for something forbidden. And God says, I forbid this for a reason. Because it will draw you away. It will take you to a place and destroy you. But here we go, don't we? You can go back to the garden. It's all sourced there. Notice they became idolaters, verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This became very vivid for me personally when we visited Israel almost two years ago. As we were traveling to Mount Carmel, uh, our tour guide um, mentioned how some of the Jews would still go up to the mountains and carry on their practices, their occultic practices and rituals. And they would do this all night long around the fire. They danced around the fire. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about this. I'm going, it's amazing to me to, to, to even fathom. Here we are sitting, I mean, we're, we're in Israel. God has delivered the Jew time and time again throughout history. And yet they follow after other gods. And that blows my mind. Especially they go after other gods that have never acted on their behalf. You're in the land for a reason. Why? Because God promised it. You'd be back. Yet they do that to this day. In Paul's day in Corinth, they worshipped Dionysius, otherwise known as the god of Bacchus. And they have these Bacchlebanian events. Well, what were those? Well, they'd have these taverns. And uh, these taverns, they'd have these barrels of, of wine. And on these barrels, they would have different names, love, joy, happiness. And you're hoping as you were taking in the wine, you were taking in the spirit of that barrel. And so you can imagine they were getting inebriated. And they were hoping to take on joy. They were hoping to take on love. But mo most, more than anything, not we know what happens when people get drunk. It's anything but that. Okay? So they have these Baclavanian events. There was also the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality. Take note of that. That's something we worship today. This temple... I'm sorry, excuse me. As we look at the temple of Aphrodite, this temple was the most magnificent building in Corinth. You know, I, I thought about that. I'm like, could you imagine? Here we are in the city of Pasadena. Here's, here's this temple in, in our city. You know, it could be city hall. But in that temple, it housed over a thousand priestesses. Well, what were they? They were temple prostitutes. Temple prostitutes. It was so popular that it eventually became also a bank. It was that profitable. 
And so these prostitutes would come on and descend upon the city at night. And that very act of having intercourse with these sacred prostitutes was considered an act of worship towards Aphrodite. Think about that. It's a double benefit. I'm worshiping Aphrodite and I'm gratifying myself. And I do my banking. You see? It appeals to the carnality of man. There was also Apollo. There was Poseidon, the, Poseidon, the god of the sea. And this is the backdrop that Paul was working with. And Paul tells us in Corinthians 8.4 that we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. And he says, even if there are so-called gods, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. Folks, the gods of Egypt have come and gone. The gods of Greece have come and gone. The new gods of our culture, atheism, naturalism, will come and they will go. But our God stands forever. Our God stands forever. An idol is anything that you bow the knee to. It's who you've committed your entire being to. Who do you bow your knee to? What is that thing that you worship? What is that object that you can't get your mind off of? That's your object. Who are you bowing down to? Or what are you bowing down to? And notice verse 8. They committed sexual immorality. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Notice the progression. It goes from idolatry to sexual immorality. The reference that Paul is alluding to is a passage in Numbers 25. There the men of Israel had enjoined themselves with the women of Moab. There they, they introduced them to worship and sacrifice to Baal, a fertility god. And there they began to have intercourse with the women. Isn't it interesting how sexual immorality is always linked to pagan rituals? Think about that. It's the giving of your body. You're, you're sacrificing your body. It's the only thing you own. And you're giving it up to a false god. Something that doesn't exist. And idolatry, paganism, and worship can take on many forms. And you'd be surprised what one will do to worship their idol. And it tells us in Numbers that a plague ensued and over 23,000 died that day. What was Paul trying to say? If you were a Corinthian sitting in that congregation, the lesson is stay away from prostitutes that you used to enjoy. But not only prostitutes, he's also saying keep yourself sexually pure. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. It says here, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Notice that? Flee. And I'll mention that word in a few moments. We're to flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I don't even belong to myself. I, I belong to God. He possesses me. And yet I'm responsible for this body He has given me. They committed sexual immorality. Now, I know this subject is probably making some of you uncomfortable tonight. Why? Well, listen, if you're here tonight and you're living in fornication, you're involved with someone sexually, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, listen, God wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive you. He doesn't want you to continue in that life. He desires to set you free. God is grieved, especially if you're a Christian and you're involved with someone sexually. God's plan for sex is within the confines of marriage. You become one spiritually with that person. God will not bless that union if you're having sex outside of marriage. He just won't do it. As you can see from this verse, there is a real danger if you do. God's people should be noted for their purity, not their impurity. Now, you know, when we have um, premarital counseling, we often ask, are you having intercourse? And sometimes they say yes. And we tell them, you know what, you need to come back. Come back in a few months and we'll talk about this. And you should see the, the look on their face. They're just, how can you do that? How can you say that we love each other? Yes, but you know what? Your reasoning, your thinking is clouded right now. You're in sin and God will not bless it. Let's see your obedience. Sometimes these go away and they, they leave. They end up getting married. And then we find out in time their lives are all messed up. Why? You see, they're going ahead of God. They're jumping outside His boundary. He has a plan. And His plan is perfect. And we need to consider those things. Notice, there's a warning to not tempt Christ the same way the Israelites tempted the Lord in the wilderness in verse 9. He says, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. This is again in Numbers 21. The children of Israel complained about God's provision. And so the Lord sent serpents into the camp, biting the people. And many of them died. And in verse 7, and to me, verse 7 is an interesting verse, because the people acknowledged their sin. They realized, man, we blew it. You know, we, we, we made a charge against God. You know, and, and Numbers 21, 7, it says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. They questioned the character and nature of God. Similarly, if you're a parent, you understand this. You know, you do all you can for your children. And then there are times your children question or critique the manner in which you do it. And then you get and, and you begin to see the sense of entitlement taking place. It's developing in them. And it challenges you because you know that they don't see the whole picture, right? As parents, you understand that? But you just don't have enough life experience to understand what's going on. They think they know better. I often tell my kids, it's not my first rodeo. Okay? I've been there. And believe me, God sees more and knows more. But sometimes 
we go along in life, and all of a sudden we feel like we're entitled, and we begin to question God's character, which the Israelites were doing. And this, if this attitude is not corrected, this type of mindset will continue to corrupt them and the rest of your home. Often we might question the goodness of God or why he operates the way he does. But he knows what he's doing. I don't have all the information. Now, it doesn't mean I leave my thinking cap at home or at the door. And I can't ask God questions, especially the questions of life. But what we're talking about is attitude. You know, I can come to the Lord and have a series of questions and, and maybe he doesn't answer them right there and then, but he does eventually. But I don't just immediately charge God. It's an attitude. And notice there's a warning not to be a complainer in verse 10. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The King James says murmurer. What does that mean to murmur? It means to complain. It means to complain. I hate this verse. I'm such a complainer. It means to grumble in a low tone. It's an expression of discontentment. It's a, it's a person who's developed a critical spirit. And they go around complaining under their breath. Everything okay? Yeah, 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 everything's okay. And that's what they do. They go along and they murmur. There's no joy in their life. And the only joy they have is the joy of murmuring and complaining. Right? You know people like that. Man, they just love complaining. They love murmuring. Listen, I think there's a little of that in everyone. Throw out the trash. Hey, Fernando, we'll get the radio and go watch the parking lot. Hey, can we switch your vacation time? You're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I should be struck down. You know, God is so good. He gives us a building that we come worship. He gives us our homes, provides food for our table, our jobs. But we can lose perspective and we need the right perspective. I was just having this conversation with my wife. You know what? I don't deserve anything. And she says, I love you. I go, you know, I don't even deserve that. I don't deserve anything. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you understand that. I don't deserve anything, period. And here's the challenge for us this week as we approach Thanksgiving. The challenge is this. Wake up in the morning and tell yourself, I don't deserve anything. And meditate on that. And then before you leave, thank God for everything. Thank God for everything that you're going to receive that day. And you're going to see how God will minister to you. And you have a better perspective. Verse 11, the warning for all ages. He says here, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're at the end of the age. And this is important for you and I to understand because the clock is ticking. We don't have a whole lot of time. And because we don't have a whole lot of time, um, we need to be wise how we spend our time. This picture that Paul has put before us serves as a good reminder how we ought to live 
in any country and in any society at any time. Because there is no excuse. There's no excuse. Then he says there's a warning against self-confidence. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I've got drinking under control. I've conquered my drug use. Pornography, it's not a, it's not a problem. I've got anger licked. It's not a big deal. If this is you, listen up. This was written just for you. Just for you. The word take heed mean, is a word blepo. It means to discern, to consider, to examine. If you think there's an error in your life that you got lit, again, the scripture is just for you. He says, take heed lest we fall into sin. We should never get to a place where we feel overconfident in a category or a specific category of sin. Because that might prove to be your undoing. Believe me, sin is rampant. Sin is so available today. Just the different categories of sin. And you know what? I've got none of them licked. So you mean you got a weakness towards alcohol? Yes, I do. Got a weakness to drugs? Yes, I do. I can't handle it. I can't handle any of it. Okay? I'd rather not entertain it. Because the moment I think I'm okay, I am not okay. And that's what the Scripture is saying. That's the logic behind it. We can't handle sin. Guaranteed. None of us are super saints. That's why I need God's strength and His ability in my life. I need His grace. Because I can't. Then He gives us the warning of escape. Notice verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let me just say that your situation is not unique. It may be unique to you, but it's not new. And what this means is we will never experience something foreign to the Scriptures in life or practice. You say, well, I have this situation. I don't see that in the Bible. Well, you won't find it in the Bible, but we have the principle in the Scripture to give us direction. You think of any category. The principles are in the Scripture. And the word temptation means to place under trial a person's virtue, his integrity, to test or prove one's character or his faith. Notice, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. What does that mean? Well, the, the Greek word here is uh, dynamai. It means to have the ability to perform a function. It means to have the power to do it or have the capacity to perform it. In other words, if God knows you can only lift 200 pounds, he's not going to give you 200 pounds plus one more pound. Okay? He's not going to do that to you. You know, uh, recently I saw a video showing this to Tony, as a matter of fact. We were laughing because it was kind of funny. Uh, this guy, he's got this, he's going to uh, do a clean and jerk. So he's got this bar and it's loaded with weight. And I'm like, there's no way this guy's going to pick up this bar. And so he picks up the bar and as he picks it up, he just rolls on his back. And, and now think about it. This is a competition. So the room is full of people. He picks it up and he rolls on his back. Gets under it again. He's like, he's shaking. Gets it up, and then he rolls and it rolls right over his, his chest and his head. Gets up again. He picks up the bar. This time he lifts, now flies forward and it goes right into the judge's table. God doesn't do that to us. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you so much weight that you can't bear it. And that's the picture here. 
That's the picture. And that should encourage us because God's plan or he doesn't plan for us to fail. And often we think that, don't we, in our, in our weakness. Gosh, I'm failing again. That's not God's plan. His desire is that you, you would fail. He didn't say, here, pick up this 500-pound barbell. Because he knows you can't pick it up. Temptations, testings will come to try you. But the good news is God is faithful. He will always give you an escape hatch. He will give you the way of escape. I mean, you, know, you may say, Fernando, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my environment where I work. As if this gives you a reason to cave in. There's no reason. It's just our weakness. What you're saying is God can't. And He can. You know, on this side of heaven, you and I will never be in a perfect environment. Adam and Eve, they lived in a perfect environment. And guess what? Did they stand? No, they fell, didn't they? Perfect environment. So it's not your environment. It's us. It's us. We're the problem. These truths work in any environment. They work in any country and in any age. If we're able to live another hundred years, these truths still work and will work. God will always give us a way of escape that we may be able to bear it, that we might be able to bear the load. Interesting, because I prefer to choose how I'd like to bear it. Right? I just want to lift this much, Lord. I don't want that much. Come on. And God, God, you know, God says, no, 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 no. Uh, I know how much you can bear. <laughs> I don't like that. Why? My mind begins to register pain. Right? When you lift a lot of weight, it's, oh, it's hard. God says, I know it's hard. But you can lift it. You'll bear it. He says, look to me, and by my grace, you'll be able to bear it. Again, I hate this verse, but I love this verse. In our, our next section, we want to look at responsibility. Verses 14 through 22, we want to look at personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. It says here, therefore... My beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Therefore, in other words, we look back to what was previously mentioned. Paul had just beautifully illustrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the house of bondage. How they fell short of all that God had for them. And they too were in danger of experiencing the same thing, the same heartaches. They are on the verge of circumventing all the blessings God had in store for them. And instead of blessing... Discipline and chastening was certainly inevitable. It was coming. It was coming. And Paul is there like a, like a good father warning them. If you don't change your ways, chastening is coming. And Paul encourages them to flee from idolatry. It's the Greek word fuego. It means to run away, to vanish, escape, to flee. The word is used in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 13 where Joseph was being warned to flee into Egypt. It was used in Matthew 26, 56, for the disciples forsaking him, fleeing from being arrested. And Paul is saying, we don't mess with idols, we don't play with idols, we flee from idols. Again, not that they have any power, but we don't want to get comfortable with them. We don't want to assume that they're not a problem. Because they are. They're a real problem. 
And he says in verse 16, that the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Paul is illustrating for us two parallel truths with the same meaning. He is saying as we come together, there's a oneness amongst us as a church. We come together, we have communion, there's a oneness with us. But conversely, there's also oneness with Christ and his sacrifice as we come together for communion. So there's a oneness with us, but we also understand there's a oneness with Christ. And in that culture, when they broke bread with guests, they believed that bread was life and that bread was being passed around and it was imparting life to each person that was receiving it. It was imparting life to them. There was a sense of oneness and a union, if you will, as they were imparting that bread. You know, you come over to someone's dinner. They invite you to dinner and, and they give you food. There's a oneness that occurs. There's a fellowship that occurs. And in verse 18, he says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Interesting. He's looking at Israel again. He says, The priests would offer the sacrifices on the altar. And as they made their offering... They, they too could partake of the offering. So not only were they offering to the Lord, but they can also partake of, of, of that sacrifice. And it's a picture of oneness. Here's a priest. He was communion. He's communing with God. There was a union that was occurring. And then he says in verse 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Again, he's making a point. He says, we enter into a union with Christ through communion, through the bread and the cup. The Israelites entered into a union with God through the sacrifice on the altar. And then he gets to his, his point regarding a union that occurs with idols. That's what he's drawing the, the, the parallel to. There's a union with idols that occurs. As I mentioned earlier, Paul answered this question back in, in an earlier chapter. An idol in and of itself is nothing. And in verse 20, he says here, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Here he is saying that idolatry is sourced in the demonic realm. And the Gentiles, they sacrifice to demons. And set before us are two categories of worship. God's prescribed way to worship or man's version to worship. Religion. And Paul is doing us a great service here. He is saying, if you're entering these temples of idolatry, know without a doubt that it's energized with demonic activity. And I do not want you to enter into that union or fellowship with demons. Which should reveal to you and me, depending on your background, where you came out of, that idols are in themselves nothing but what's attached to those idols has a spiritual influence. And that influence might divide your heart. It may trip you up. You know, um, I was thinking about this. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. Well, it depends who you are, but um, I had a dentist appointment. And I went to go see my dentist. He's going to do a cleaning. And nicest man you'll meet. Nicest man. And he's, you know, he's working on my mouth and he's probably in his 70s and he's just cleaning and he's talking to me and, and he tells me he's a believer and, 
And then uh, uh, he has this conversation. He says, you know, listen to the radio. I was listening to, to K-Wave. I'm like, okay. And I can't talk, right? So I'm, my mouth is full. And he says, you know, and here these pastors come on and, and you know, they say these, these statues are, are worthless pieces of plaster. You know, I, I, I don't appreciate that. He says, you know, those, those things are they're steeped in deep tradition. And, and that's offensive. You know, I can't believe they would say things like that. And he goes, and as he says, well, go ahead and rinse. He goes, and as I was getting up to rinse, and he goes, you wouldn't happen to be one of those Christians, are you? I spit out, and I looked at him, and I go, yes, I am. And he, uh, well, 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 you know, uh, I, I think that's, I mean, it's wrong, but I, I, you know, I can't imagine that you would think that way. And I said, I'll tell you what. And I began to share in the Old Testament and New Testament the problems with idolatry. And he, and he just said, well, but it's still wrong. I go, okay, I'll tell you what. Chapter and verse, Doc. And at this point, he's yelling. My sister works in the office, and they can hear everything outside, and they're just, they can hear the yelling. I'm not yelling. He's yelling. I said, give me chapter and verse. But, 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 and he kept going on. Well, this pastor, go, I'm not asking you what the pastor said. I'm asking you what the scripture says. Please give me chapter and verse, why it's okay to, to acknowledge these, these idols. And he just was livid. I said, okay, I'll see you later. Walked out. And then he walks down the hallway, and he is still berating. I mean, he is just livid. Well, this pastor and that pastor go, chapter and verse. And, and the gal, the secretary that works there, she looks up at me, and real quietly she says, you know, my son agrees with you. And I said, well, you tell your son, you know, he's a right-on guy. And then I hear him screaming again. <laughs> but, you know, it, it just has this influence. It has a hold on people. Here's an elderly man, an educated man, attached to his idols. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Again, Paul is making a point here. It's a losing proposition. Pick one. Pick one. And now we're going to move to our next section. It's the respon- our responsibility to others. Verses 23 all the way down to chapter 11, verse 1. Notice here he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. He's saying, though prostitution is legal in Corinth, or drinking is legal in Corinth, or the purchasing of meat offered to idols is legal, it doesn't mean I take advantage of those liberties for personal gain. And what's in view here are others. That's the point here. It's others-centered. It could be the non-believer. It could even be the believer what he's saying is, even if the culture permits these things, it doesn't mean I'm to partake of them, especially since my actions will affect others. It'll affect the body of Christ. So what about today? Is abortion legal? Yeah. Marijuana? You see, though those things are legal, doesn't mean I take advantage of them. You see, they contradict the Word of God. And they stumble people along the way. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's 
in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. What is Paul talking about here? He's now addressing an obvious scenario which occurs in everyday, the everyday lives of these Corinthians. It was common knowledge that when you went to the market to purchase meat, you had two options. Meat sold um, at market value or meat offered at a discounted price since it had been offered to, uh, in their temples. What does one do? I mean, hey, Super King has this meat, that's regular price, and this meat over here that was offered to idols, that's cheaper. Well, that's sure tempting, isn't it? It's good meat. God created it. What's the problem? He says, don't ask. God created it. It's not a problem. As a Christian, I can do that. Say, hey, you know what? It's not a problem. This is one of those areas where ignorance is bliss. We don't ask where it was offered to. Now, today, we don't have that issue here. But in that culture, there's a principle that's being taught here. In verse 28, he says, you know, but what about when someone invites you over for dinner? And as you sit down, the, the fragrance of meat fills your nostrils. And they tell you, hey, you know what? I got this great price on the meat. It was offered at one of the temples. And this morning, I, I happened to walk in as that meat was coming in. And I, Man, I got a great deal. I hope you enjoy it. What are you supposed to do? He says, you're supposed to refuse it. So, but I, that meat's right there. It's good meat. It's, you don't eat it for the sake of the person who offered it. For their conscience, not yours. It's not a big deal to me. But it's for the benefit of the other. Why? Notice verse 29. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? For the conscience of the other. If they know you're a Christian and they tell you the meat was offered to an idol, how can you then proceed and give thanks to the Lord in the presence of another? Does that make sense to you? You know what I'm talking about? So in other words, if they know that meat was offered to an idol and they tell you it was offered to an idol, how can you begin praying and giving thanks for that meat? You're going to cause confusion. You see? And that's what he's talking about. Again, it's this idea of union that's occurring. I don't want to send a mixed message that God is just, as, is just a small God among many gods. You see, they were used to that. And what I'm telling them is, my God has no association with those other gods. He is not like those pagan gods. He is different. And that's the point he's trying to make. I don't want to stumble my brother or sister who's, who has a weaker conscience. I'll just tell him I'll take it home. That's okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. What is he saying? He is saying the measure of your spirituality is not measured by entitlement. Your spirituality is measured by being other-centered. It's proven by your obedience and it's proven in your worship. It's proven all the way down to what you put in your mouth. Interesting, isn't it? You have this whole full spectrum 
And he addresses all those different areas. And why is this important? People are looking at your life. There are certain places I refuse to go to. I won't go to a sports bar. I won't go to certain places that I know that I could stumble. If I can't take my kids there, then maybe I ought not to go. Don't want to be there. He's saying you need to be responsible in these areas of your life. There's a responsibility you and I have towards the Lord and a responsibility towards others. It's not just about me. It's about other people. Also in verse 33, and I think it's worth mentioning, Paul's not being hypocritical here where he says he seeks to please all men. What he's referring to is his sensitivity to those who have a weak conscience. And that's what's in view here. That's the context. Then he says he's not seeking his own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And that's the difference between Paul and these Corinthians. You see, they were carnal. You know, and, and what he's what he does is he illustrates that carnality hinders the work of God. It repels people from knowing God. However, what people do take note of is the love you have for them. That's what stands out. That's why Paul says in the next verse, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What a bold statement for Paul to make. Could you, could you make that statement? Imitate me as I imitate Christ? What does that mean? I mean, really, what does that mean? Man, think of just the beauty of Christ. Self-sacrifice. I can't imagine what that's like. And Paul says here, imitate me. You're talking about about this great theologian. Jumping ships. Suffering punishment. And he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are you imitating Christ? Can people see something different in you? Can believers look at you like a role model? You know, Bob Kens, if, if those of you knew him, you know, passed away about two weeks ago. And in all the years I knew him, I never saw him mad, ever. Always a servant's attitude. And to me, he's a man that just emulated who Christ was. And there are very few people like that in the church. And that's something that we need to emulate. We need to be like Christ. So often we we get a picture, but we fail to obey. And we need to. We need to yield to him. Imitate Christ. I have a question here. What if all your children talked and acted like you to the T? Would that reflect Christ? I don't know. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again in Jesus' name. And Lord, we want to thank you again for just this great letter. Lord, that we would yield to you, that we wouldn't be carnal. Lord, we could be carnal at a heartbeat, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that we would obey, we would learn, Lord, from the churches and and Israel and, and what not to do, Lord. And Lord, that we would just yield to you. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight, if you're here tonight and there's things the Lord has ministered to you about, maybe you've walked away or you don't know Christ and you want to receive him tonight, you could do that exactly where you're at.
And all you need to do is just repeat this prayer of faith, just walking you through it, and just repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me all my sins. I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Savior. That He died for my sins. He's coming again. I accept Him as my Lord and Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe we have one more song here.